All right. Good morning, everyone. So for my topic of interest for this internship, I chose philosophy. It's something that I've been rather invested in studying for the last two years in school. Um, hopefully will be for the next two years as well. Wait, two years? Yes, two years. Got two years left. Um, I don't know if it's something that I'll ever make a career out of, but it's something I've enjoyed and hope to study further even after I leave, um, after I finish my undergraduate degree. So why study philosophy? Why study philosophy when there are so many more lucrative degree paths to choose from? Why study philosophy when many schools of modern philosophical thought seem completely opposed to the Christian faith? What does it mean to be a student of philosophy as a follower of Christ and a follower of Christ as a student of philosophy? These are the sorts of questions I sought to answer as I embarked on this internship project over the past few months. Though I certainly don't have all the answers yet, I don't think I ever will, I hope to be able to share today just a bit of what I've been learning and thinking about. I want to start by looking at the relation between scriptures and philosophy, or what the Christian faith brings to the pursuit of philosophy. First is the idea of wisdom. The term philosophy itself comes from the Greek meaning love of wisdom, and this same love of wisdom is reflected in the Proverbs, which hold the pursuit of wisdom to be critical to the life of the righteous and the God-fearing. While no human can ever achieve full wisdom, scripture seems to put its development forth as at least a goal to strive for. The same can be said for truth. Though no human can ever fully comprehend truth, truth is a key aspect of biblical doctrine. Where would we be if what we believe didn't believe, we didn't believe it to be true? The Apostle Paul includes it as quality of that on which our thoughts should dwell, and Christ famously describes himself in truth. With this in mind, the love of and pursuit of truth can be seen to be at least a part of a loving and pursuing relationship with God. Of course, the field of philosophy presents many faith, dangers to faith and false ideas masquerading as the truth. Many schools of philosophical thought, whether historical or modern, from the Epicureans to the postmodernists, um, rest on fundamental assumptions that are either in opposition to the fundamental truths of Christianity or that lead to conclusions dissonant with the life that Christ calls us to. A Christian philosopher must have the courage both to reject popular assumptions they cannot in good faith assent to and work with premises that might be out of fashion in the present intellectual landscape. One of the papers I read recently connected this, this to the idea of living a distinctively Christian life. It is the questions that arise while living this life, while walking the path of Christ, that the Christian philosopher is called to focus on. The temptation, of course, is to focus instead on those popular questions that would gain a philosopher renown in the academic world. To do so would to be motivated by pride, a danger always present for those who pursue a life dedicated to academics and scholarship. Pride in the idea that one is better than their intellectual opponents, pride in being better than the ignorant and uninformed masses, pride in self-satisfaction that might come simply from being able to teach someone something they didn't know before. This pride, of course, is radically opposed to the message of Christ and the life of those who follow in his footsteps. I believe that one of the goals of a Christian philosopher is to flip this pride in its head. We must be humbled by the glory of God displayed in the intricacies of the universe. We must be humbled by all that we don't know, all the limits to human understanding that we will always inevitably run up against. We must be humbled by the responsibilities of seeking wisdom and sharing what we know with others lay upon us. We must be humbled by all that others can teach us from their varied backgrounds and life experiences outside the sphere of academia. However, the life of a philosopher, as with the life of any other believer, cannot just be defined by its struggles and temptations. For every valley of the shadow of death is a field of green pastures and a stream of quiet waters. I believe that the pursuit of truth and wisdom adds its own, adds its own blessing and depth to the life of the Christian. The first aspect of this is the critical thinking so integral to philosophical pursuits. 
By considering every matter with a critical mind, the philosopher can evaluate the competing narratives and ideal ideologies of the world around them, and is helped in following Christ's instruction to be as clever as serpents in a world of wolves. Of course, this must be done with the aforementioned humility, in line with the other part of the verse I've alluded to, that we might be as gentle as doves. Thinking critically about what we believe and being open to new ideas, examining each question from many sides can actually play a role in having this humility, as it leaves the door open to admitting your previous opinion or belief might be mistaken, and lessens the tendency to stick stubbornly and arrogantly to one path of thinking. Like any other path, really, philosophy can also be a chance for showing Christ through one's action and beliefs. However, philosophy and academia can bring their own dimension to this in a field that can often be hostile to Christianity, in a world where some assume Christians be ignorant and unreasonable by default. Being a Christian engaged in scholarly pursuits can put forward an image of Christ and of Christians that some unbelievers might not otherwise see. I think it's worth noting that Christ himself was primarily known as a teacher throughout his lifetime, deeply involved in the intellectual discussions of his day, though giving radically different answers than the other schools of thought popular during this time. I think something similar is to call Christian philosophers. Philosophy opens some specific avenues for demonstrating a thoughtful and intellectually engaged side of philosophy, but I also don't think it's something unique to those who study philosophy. I, something, I think it's something we're all called to, at least in part, as Christians. History is also a big part of philosophy, looking back on the writers and thinkers in the past. I think this can provide specific benefits for Christians, and looking back to Christian scholars who have grappled with many of the same challenges and philosophical dilemmas we do today can provide insight into the relation of philosophy and faith. While there might be a tendency among most philosophers to look back on past thinkers with some disdain as old-fashioned because we know better in today's age, with the assumption that modern thought is much more advanced and superior to the mistaken beliefs of the past, I think the Christian thinker can recognize God's work all throughout history and see these past writers as important parts of the tradition of faith and valuable resources to draw upon. I know personally Christian philosophers and thinkers such as Augustine of Hippo, Thomas Aquinas, Søren Kierkegaard, and C.S. Lewis have all shaped how I see my faith and life as a Christian through relating to the philosophical ideas of studying in school. In closing, I think a story that's always stuck out to me is from the book of Acts in which the Apostle Paul debates with the Stoics and Epicureans, major groups of philosophers in Greece at that time. Though they were puzzled by the message of Christ, they were curious, and Paul was able to use aspects of their own poetry and religious worship to point them towards God. I think something similar is the calling of Christians involved in philosophy or other similar academic pursuits. Something one of my, one of my philosophy professors said when I interviewed him for this internship really stood out to me. He said the challenge is not really the integration of faith and philosophy. The integration is there already. The challenge is how to tease out those connections. We must seek to draw out the ways in which the pursuit of wisdom and the study of the universe all points to God and all serves in the end to glorify him. Good morning, everybody. So my topic of study was medicine. And for years, I've been drawn to medicine. I always thought it was fascinating, and it stayed on my mind for a really long time. At the end of ninth grade, it became clear to me and sure that I wanted to pursue medicine. Since then, my desire has grown, and medicine has become a much more real presence in my life. I've tried to soak up any information I could from hearing my dad talk about his day at work or during science research, just reading any article I could. And something that especially intrigued me within science research was the psychology behind patient healing and how to make patients more emotionally secure so that their physical being can improve at a faster rate and a more efficient rate. 
through the internship, I've had the chance to question how my faith aligns with my goal of being a doctor, and I've gotten to see how faith and medicine combine as two, two parts of one whole rather than two separate parts of my life. I'm definitely not the philosophy expert, <laughs> but the Greek view of self tends to separate mind and soul from our physical bodies. Some do see the physical body as irrelevant, as the soul is what dictates a relationship with God and with people. However, God created the human body as a vehicle for our minds, thoughts, and earthly purposes. There's the verse in Psalm 100, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And this carefully and incredibly complex body full of nerves and different blood vessels and organs that are all working together for this one huge cause, it's a reminder of God's existence. He wouldn't have created the body if it was superfluous to his purpose. We relate to one another in terms of our senses. For example, in Revelation, God's voice is compared to the sound of water. Heaven is described as shining and sparkling. Our body and our senses allow us to interact with creation. We have the senses, we have our muscles to move, and we have the ability in typical circumstances to hug and comfort one another. Jesus did not only come to mend our souls, but he came to mend all of the broken parts of us that resulted from our separation from God due to sin. He healed, which was an echo of the power that created this world in the first place, and he healed people's wounds through his own. One of the most important parts of Jesus's care was his soul's involvement in every single action of healing he did. He saw his people suffering, but also noticed how one's particular form of brokenness may be felt in one dimension, for example, their physical body, but may derive from another, like their spiritual or emotional well-being or lack thereof. An example of this can be found in Luke 5, when Jesus healed the paralytic man who was lowered through the ceiling tiles. Even though this man didn't specifically ask for prayer or forgiveness, in verse 20, Jesus said, friend, your sins are forgiven. This is just an instance of how Jesus's recognition of people's needs going beyond physical healing. Without the forgiveness of our sins, we too are paralyzed like this man and stuck in a position of helplessness. Jesus offers us that liberation. Another part of Jesus's role as a healer was his deep empathy. He felt with people rather than for people. Empathy literally translates to in another suffering. And in another example of this can be found in the Gospel of John, when Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. Although Jesus knew he was about to raise his friend, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. He saw the pain brought about by sin, and wanted to make it better. He wanted the physical body to be healed because he saw the pain of his friends. He saw the pain of Lazarus upon his death and he, he wanted to find a solution to this. One impediment to showing um, empathy as a healthcare worker as Jesus did can be hospital policies. While it isn't technically against the law to bring up religion in a healthcare context, some hospitals have policies limiting their staff's freedom to bring up religion. Some patients, however, may ask for prayer, and it's moments like these where we can reach out and especially make our Christianity known in healthcare. You can also pray independently. Every prayer makes a difference. We can also make it known through our actions, through sitting with patients, listening to what they say, or seeing difficult patients who other healthcare workers might turn down or see as undesirable or too complicated or difficult. 
There's also a complicated balance between empathy and professionalism. From what I understand, healthcare workers are generally expected to be calm and professional presences in emergency situations. You don't want to scare the patient or their family. Venus and Romilly both told me that they pray for wisdom in these high pressure circumstances. They want to be able to properly do their job if someone's experiencing physical trauma, but they also want to have the wisdom to be able to sit down and talk with the families and talk with the patients and take care of their emotional needs as well as their physical needs. When you get your emotions involved in a patient's life, it can be really painful if they pass away or you see their condition getting worse. So what can healthcare workers do to take care of themselves emotionally? One article I read encouraged those in caring professions to think with the narrative of their situation. Don't overanalyze an event, but rather tell the story to others so you can clarify what happened and get the events in order and clear. As Christians, we can deal through grief that we see in the hospital and in the lives of our patients through sharing our narrative with God and others in the church community and recognizing God's role in all of it and our role in all of it and how our calling can shape the events that happened. Life is not in our hands and doctors and nurses and nurse practitioners do all that they can, but we at least can have that Christian awareness through prayer and through interaction with our church community that life does come to an end, but God offers a way out of this trap of death. Unfortunately, some people go into healthcare solely to make money. As Christians who are showing Jesus selflessness, all of the healthcare workers that I spoke to are extremely dedicated and sacrificial to their work. One works in missions, so maybe his income isn't as large as it would be if he were working in the United States. All of them show dedication by showing love and not just administering the minimum amount of care to their patients. And Sarah Dawson is starting her own practice to have more freedom in donating and in providing better care to those who can't get it as easily. All of these sacrificial actions and attitudes come from the perspective that they gained as believers of the Bible. As Christians, we have the concept of the new heaven and the new earth, which gives us perspective. Money and possessions can be easy to idolize, but with prayer and faith, it's easier to see how insignificant money is in the long run. Not that earning money is bad, just it's not a top priority. It can also be tempting within medicine to be prideful, like in the Romans passage we read earlier, it mentioned how people can fall prey to thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. Admitting that we're wrong or don't know something can injure our pride, but through honesty, we can offer better health care. In our human nature, we want to know everything about and within our field, or at least have it seen this way. But being a child of God separates one's entire identity from his or her career. There's no shame in looking into something or asking a coworker for input or referring a patient to a specialist who knows more about their issue. There are no false promises involved and we don't need to put up a facade of being all knowing. Another way in which pride may seep into healthcare is the fact that professions in healthcare can sometimes be worshiped. Florence Nightingale is one of the founders of nursing and hospitals as we know them today. One reason why she was so extraordinary as a nurse and a leader was her humility. After she had led the military nurses in the Crimean War, people wrote songs and poems about her and how amazing all her work all of her work was, and she did not like this at all. She saw and acknowledged that God equipped her with the talent and team of nurses that allowed her to perform so successfully in saving the soldiers' lives. She saw her work in medicine as a duty and privilege from God, instead of deeming it a product of her own intelligence and hard work. Another challenge that healthcare workers can face is the sacrifice of time. 
there are long hours involved and you don't necessarily have as much time to spend with your family and friends. The first challenge toward and within my goal that I will face is the time that I'll have to spend in school and studying. Medical school and residency take up many years in the 20s that I could be spending having different types of fun than studying. And undergraduate classes will also be demanding. But as I move into my undergraduate years, I also want to focus on the beauty of surprises. We got to speak with Mrs. Steele and Mr. Faya, and both emphasized the importance of letting God take control. Mrs. Steele was explaining to the three of us one day how wonderful God's surprises are. And as a person who likes control, this is surely something that I struggle with. As I go into my undergraduate years, however, I'm going to try to become more aware of where God is leading me and explore the classes that college is offering me. Right now, I'm sure that I want to go into medicine and I'm very attached to the idea, but God does have full control over this situation. A goal of mine in the years to come is to be more open and receptive toward God's plans and to loosen my grasp on my own. I do hope that God places me in medicine as I do feel that it is my calling but God is much wiser and will guide me wherever his will will best be done. I want to thank Pastor Wiedenhoff for implementing, for implementing this idea in all of the Zoom meetings and just for sharing a lot of resources and stories and wisdom and experiences. Thank you to Barbara Deal, who we did Zoom calls with, and I really learned a lot from all of those. Thank you to Jerry Faya for meeting with us and sharing interesting stories from his different jobs and experiences sharing God within these jobs. And to also, also to the people who I got the chance to interview about their jobs. So Dr. Sarah Dawson, Romelia Scarpe, Venus Policarpio, and then two people who I believe did attend CBC for a bit, um, Mark Burtwistle and David Larrabee. Thank you. Hello all, this is Claire Martin and I want to talk with you about dance and movement. Stereotyping has led to labeling dancers as bohemians or atheists or members of the LGBTQ community. The church has even stereotyped dance as a sin. At the former Christian King's College in Briarcliff, there were many restrictions on dance and people were forbidden to go ballroom dancing. What's frustrating for many dancers is that the general public has preconceived ideas of what dance is. It's uncommon that someone really wants to understand the field of dance, its importance, and how it fits into the world. Often, people automatically want to know how you can make money and a living out of dance. God calls us to respond with graciousness to their misconceptions. God calls us to be in touch with who we are so that we are proud knowing that we are called to dance for His glory in whatever way God has given us. We must never be ashamed to claim our power in following Christ through our gifts. In fact, we would be ashamed if we stopped using our gifts. Art and dance bring beauty, truth, and joy to others. Art is like flowers. There are as many reasons for the purpose of a flower as there are for dance. Through dance, we can tell important stories about God and the world. Dance is an outlet for artists, a means to express ourselves, and to be filled with life. We respond to God's abundance with whatever gifts He has given us, and for some people, we dance. We know that God values a human body because in the very beginning of Genesis, God created our physical form and called us very good. The Jews believed in a physical and material world. In the new heaven and earth, we would retain physical bodies to enjoy God and his work. From the New Testament, we also understand that creation is worth embracing. Jesus took on the physical form, becoming fully human to experience and empathize with us. After his resurrection, Jesus retained a transformed body and he still maintains his physical presence in eternity. Therefore, we must worship God with our whole bodies, including through movement and dance. 
We are taught to suppress our emotions and to hide our tears or anger, but we can't run from our feelings in art. There is a place for weeping, frustration, anger, and they point us to hope. God wants the church to wrestle with this and become involved in the creative community. We must be okay experiencing the full spectrum of emotions, just like the Bible doesn't hide our messiness. Our hope is that when the mess is exposed, we can talk about redemption. When we worship, we are reliving and acting out our faith, our relationship with God, and the covenant. In the Lord's Supper, we are told to participate, as Jesus said, in remembrance of me, meaning that we are to proclaim his death and the good news both in word and deed. We are to use our bodies to tell others that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We can minister to others through dance and shows, and many people may be touched. We can also minister to people backstage through casual conversations or questions. When we strive to excel in the gifts God provided us, people will notice and ask why we are so talented or have so much passion. This is a testimony in itself and opens the door to speak to others about our faith. We can share our stories, why we felt called to dance. We can describe its purpose, how it benefited ourselves and others, and how it has centered us around Christ. Dancers have reached out to churches to perform or put on theater productions, which can be a blessing and spiritually impact those observing. Another way to involve everyone in dance is for every person to breathe together and make small movements together. Dancers give people permission to feel uncomfortable, to step into something new, and to move their bodies. Different workshops can be made to teach churches about dance, such as preparing Bible studies on dance or making interpretive dances to music. Such dances have inspired others and the ministry of dance continues throughout generations. Dancing for God is never a waste of time. Even today, Mrs. Schultz will dance in her church when directed by God. Her sensitivity to the Spirit prompted people to raise their hands and praise God, an awesome way to come before the Lord's presence. Dance can bring light to stories and testimonies. We can demonstrate how Jesus responds to police brutality and movements such as Black Lives Matter. As Ms. Shantae Irving stated, Christians should let art be created, then bring it to church so that the story is told within a Christian atmosphere. As we bring stories from the world through dance, we call the church accountable to help the world now. Dancers must let the church see what's being created in the world, then we can determine what our response will be in accordance with God and respond by using art to minister to people. Some aspects of dance can be difficult. Sometimes we're asked to move in ways we've never danced before, which can feel awkward or uncomfortable. We may be asked to open up parts of ourselves we've never accessed before, which may leave us feeling vulnerable or even helpless. Dancing is all about finding the balance between what feels comfortable, pushing ourselves, exploring the way our bodies move, and understanding our limits. Especially in dance, there are so many pressures and distractions, but because we are centered in God, we can pursue dance wherever God directs. If we are too off-balance in one direction, we may fall into self-pity or insecurity by fabricating negative ideas. In the other direction, we may let fame go to our heads and become haughty or proud. We don't need to be perfect, and we must be confident in ourselves and who God made us to be. We need God to put things in perspective so that we can grow in humility and perseverance. While dancing, we have to be honest with ourselves by understanding that the journey is really hard. We might not make it, and we can't be happy all the time. Because of the troubles we face, we must strive to let as much joy come through with our honest examination of where we are. Exploring and welcoming our emotions is really important because our job as dancers is to tell the truth. If we deny how we truly feel, we are dishonest to ourselves, doing the opposite of what is required. We must be honest, live through our emotions, and we have to be okay being sensitive. 
Unfortunately, most dancers experience injuries, which leave them out of commission for a long time. However, resting and healing opens up the space to question our decisions and our paths. When Abby Kelvis was injured, she went to her classes to sit and watch. As she journaled and wrote about the dancers, she began to look at her body, alignment, and movement in a different way. Her time of rest opened up an incredible amount of learning, emotional growth, reflection, and recentering as she remembered why she dances. It's her God-given passion. Balancing personal time and dance life can be difficult. Therefore, time with friends, family, or fun activities is often sacrificed. Becoming a dancer requires a great amount of commitment, and it's very physically or mentally demanding, similar to being an Olympic athlete. Even when dancers are on break, they can't truly relax because they have to continually think about their body to stay in shape. Dancers often have to wait to have children or don't have any because becoming pregnant endangers their career. If dancers want to continue their academic education, they must do work on the side, which requires an incredible amount of commitment, especially if other dancers are partying together. Dancers striving to become professionals must start young; therefore, these sacrifices begin at an early age. Dance is certainly expensive. The cost for dance wear, shoes, training, costumes, competitions, travel, and hotels is extremely high. Abby Calvis learned to take control of her money situation and be intentional when spending. Having God takes away the fears of job security and fears for the future because we can trust that whatever will happen next is in God's hands. We continue to dance because of the joy found in dancing and giving others dance. One of the most important skills and knowledge base one needs to be a dancer is understanding and taking care of the body. As Abby Kelvis described, first she had to become in touch with herself and her body, then she could open herself up to connect with others by teaching them about their bodies and performing for them. Her dance and movement were able to reach people in places words couldn't. We find joy in dance because it's a gift from God that we love pursuing. When we dance, we are connected with God, the amazing artist. We remain joyful, knowing that there are stories being told, that dancers are giving voices to those who don't have one. One of Miss Shantae Irving's favorite moments was when she played Nala in The Lion King on Broadway, where kids from Make a Wish Foundation came to see the show. She reflected that watching the Broadway show may have been their dying wish. Her sacrifices were a gift to someone else. God transforms us through every calling, including dance, where we first must establish a firm foundation, our identity as children of God. Everything relies on our identity; therefore, God's creation, our bodies, must be used for His glory. We must be sensitive and open-minded to God's movement and where He's leading us. If God is calling us to move or take a leap of faith or to improvise, we need to dance out in the open and follow Him, giving our whole hearts. In training, we must use our gifts for God's mission by learning how best to reach out to others and finding ways to love and serve them. We must put our heart and soul into our performances and worship to give breath to stories and connect with our audience. Even through difficulties, when God closes doors, we must persevere and maintain a hunger and excitement for what it means to live by faith. We can revitalize in our God-given identity, our gifts, and look back on all the instances we've been able to bless others with joy. Right now, most of us are sitting, and maybe our bones are achy or restless or sleepy or something totally different. Sitting can be a posture before the Lord. This can be using our bodies to worship God. The shift between just sitting and a posture before the Lord requires us to allow our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and everything in us to turn to God. We must claim, God, we are sitting in your presence. We are waiting here for your teaching and instruction. We are eager to hear and feel you. Next, we may want to move into a gesture as we open our hearts to the Lord. We lift our hands. We raise our eyes. We make ourselves vulnerable. We sacrifice our comfort and offer ourselves to the Lord. We pray, Father, please give us hearts of praise. 
God, fill our hands with what you want for us. Remind us that we can trust you to provide everything we need. If you feel comfortable, we invite you to move in the next song. You can sway to the music and clap your hands to the rhythm. Feel the beat coursing through your body. Let the emotions of the song sink in as you encounter God. We claim, God, you are here among us. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We praise you because you loved us and created us. Let us reach out and touch others with your love. Amen. <laughs> 